You're listening to Shannon Taylor Talk. Heart to heart with your fascinating online friends around the globe. Is there a secret to keeping the inner child alive? As we, yes. As we, yes. Don't, don't ever grow up. <laughs> refuse, to, refuse to grow up. I think that's the key. The inner child is always there, but we are sometimes tempted, you know, to grow up by by rewards or by peer approval or by having to be so serious, you know, the sort of straight straight laced corporate culture that doesn't allow enough play actually will sort of squash the inner child. And uh, this is a, a terrible thing because what's one of the most beautiful aspects of, of humanity that I find is the sort of not childishness but childlikeness, the idea of innocence or wonder or awe that we once had with the world. And if you look at children, I mean, everything is so fascinating for them, right? right? And they have no prejudices. They learn those, unfortunately, but they're born without prejudice. Children are all Buddhas. They look at everything. They make no judgments about it at all. They just accept everything that's going on. Unfortunately, they will then sometimes accept things that shouldn't be going on, and that's a problem. But this whole wonderful mentality of looking at the world with a sense of wonder and acceptance and non-judgmentalness, this is part of that childlike aspect. And great geniuses have had this. Einstein was like this, you know? He was like this. He looked at the world like an innocent child. And that's also why he saw so deeply. So I think we have to encourage this in adults, too. And it makes them better at their jobs. If you have that inner child with you, and you, you give a little expression to that child, like re- at recess time, then you go back to work, I think, a happier and healthier person. You um, you play, um, what, guitar? Is that... I, I, I saw that I saw that you play guitar and oh uh, yes and you every day and you're you're a photographer and uh, you keep the arts alive in your life yes I, I, I really try that I was fortunate very fortunate Shannon to have had uh, exposure to both you know I had my, my school when I was in secondary school they, they gave us a lot of science but they also made sure that we had instruments and we painted or we did you know things that were artistic so we could mm-hmm. develop both sides and so I don't see, again, I don't see two sides. I just see the human being as functioning across a spectrum. So sure, I mean, I love the guitar, and I play every day that I possibly can. And these days, mostly Bach, but uh, I, I love music. And photography is a way that I have of connecting with nature. Uh, we just had a great season up here. The foliage was peaking in the lower Hudson Valley about, uh, I guess, just a week or two ago. And I was out there in the, in the state park taking taking pictures and and, and connecting with nature. So th- th- those pursuits, I think, are once again all part of being an integral human being. Now, were you was your um, childhood? Um um, very fostering of creative activity. I mean, did your parents really support that? And how? Yes, very strongly. And I think this is important for you know for parents to realize in the USA that, particularly in the USA, where we have so much technology. How many of us? And I did this with my own son, and it was you know in a way a mistake. How many of us throw throw our children into you know into a room with Nintendo and let that be the babysitter and the tutor? Um, instead of getting them to be producers, they become consumers. If you think about a hundred years ago. Uh, if people wanted to make music, they had to play instruments. I mean, if a family wanted music in the home, then they had to play instruments, and that's why a lot of instruments were built and sold in music schools, you know, became important, because people had to be producers of their own music. And when people in the home were playing together, this connected them in a, in a certain way. It was very, very good socially as well. 
People made music together. They produced their own culture. Nowadays, you know, because of the successes of our technological economy, we've all become consumers. We're kind of forced to be consumers. It's hard to take a walk anywhere and not consume something or fight off a bunch of people wanting you to consume something. And, that's, and that has its positive side, but we've become too much focused on consumption and not enough on production. So what art does is that it, it allows people once again to experience the joys of creation, of being, you know, of being producers as opposed to consumers of culture. And this is what we need to be doing with our children. So, yeah, my father was very much uh, focused on discipline. He wanted me to, whatever it was I was doing, he, you know, he wanted me to do it well, to work hard, and to be very serious and to be very rigorous, mm -hmm. so he had that side. Uh, and my mother encouraged me to be extremely creative and, and to have no boundaries when it came to the mind. So I had a wonderful combination of parenting, you could say, that I got the discipline you know, that I needed to do anything well you have to practice, including the arts, but I also got the sense of the importance of creativity and the encouragement to be creative, which a lot of children need. How, um, how has the art affected you in... Um in the way that you you work i mean is is music and art so integral in the way that you express yourself as a philosopher and how did you become a philosopher i mean you know and in, in, in our society it's it's uh when you if you were to say i want to be a philosopher your father's going to say uh, you know you're not going to make any money being a philosopher don't do that Tell me about it. Well, I can and how many I would share with you. You sound like a thousand emails I've gotten in the last decade because now that now that we have an association for practicing philosophers yeah. and there's some hope, you know, it's really sad because if you if you take philosophy and 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 do what's been done in the universities, which is to make it almost 100% theoretical, it's really in the 70s that applied ethics emerged, and that's good. That's a big step. Uh, applied ethics is taking philosophy back into situations where it can be used for something aside from pure contemplation. Mm -hmm. So again, um, the, the, the thing is to have a balance between theory and practice. And a lot of people now email me. I get email from lawyers and psychologists, all kinds of people who say, gee, I wanted to study philosophy. I always loved philosophy. But once again, what, just what you said, my parents wouldn't let me or the whole family said, are you kidding? You want to eat? Do you want to work for a living? So this whole pressure you know, to earn a living and to walk in well-defined pathways ended up crushing a lot of uh, creative aspirations that people had in a life of contemplation or thought. And listen, Shannon, we have to trust the cosmos to a certain extent. We have to be prudent and we have to be, you know, savvy and street smart, but we also have to be trusting. And if you in your heart have this, you know, some burning desire to, to think or to be a philosopher or to express yourself in that way, and if your peer group or your parents or, your, you know, if they, if they somehow block you or convince you you shouldn't, then you're going to be unhappy. You're setting yourself up for unhappiness no matter how much money you might make or how much money you have you, you, or how successful you may be at a career that you didn't choose for yourself. I think the key to fulfillment in life is leading an original life and an authentic life and not worrying so much about how am I going to eat. Uh, you, may, you may, in fact, incur some displeasure you know, from your parents and peers, and it may require an enormous amount of courage to be who you are, but the greatest people in the world are, are who they are at, right. at anything they do, and, and they radiate this authenticity and joy, and they do it really well. But it does take courage to be who you are, that's for sure. Does take courage. I, I, I became a philosopher for another reason. I wanted to avoid working for a living as long <laughs> as possible. So this was, you know, being a philosopher, that's easy, believe me. But seriously, I mean, I just felt called to it, and uh, some people are more secure in a profession that's well-defined, in which there's a, you know, there's a, a road map, so to speak, so mm -hmm. you know what to do. 
and we certainly need that. But other people uh, are, are going to be more fulfilled not having a roadmap and having to blaze their own trail. But we're, uh, we're taught to deny the um, fulfillment, the self-fulfillment that's selfish. You want to do this, that's selfish. You're not thinking about other people or your family and so forth. You know, and there's, is there a certain need to be selfish sometimes? Yes, it's, there, there, are, there definitely is. And Ayn Rand wrote a, a great uh, little book called The Virtue of Selfishness. And the Dalai Lama talks about this. He says, be wisely selfish. I think there are two ways in which you can be selfish, unwisely and wisely. The unwise way has to do with possessiveness and of ego, you know, just wanting to gratify the ego at the expense of others and going through life expecting other people to provide your pleasure or your enjoyment and not really giving anything back. And that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of unhealthy or unwise selfishness almost always leads to unhappiness. And, uh, and create suffering. It's not, it's not good at all. But the other sense of selfishness is, is if, you want, if you want to be an example for other people, if you want to be a light you know, for others, then you, you, that light, that has to radiate from within. And if you're, if you're being authentic to who you really are, then it, you'll be fine and that you'll be a great example to others. That's not selfish. So being who you are is, in fact, your duty. It's your first duty. If you want to be a good parent, I would say if you're not who you are, if you're doing something, you know, which is really false to you in a sense, mm-hmm. and you're unfulfilled, then there's going to be something inside of you that's not right and is never going to be right, and therefore that will affect the other things that you do. And the people that you're closest to, namely your family, are going to feel that. It's going to rub off on them. And they may even catch that from you as a kind of, once again, this cultural syndrome where it's called pathologos, where it's, 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 it's bad baggage that you hand on to your children. So they'll get the idea, oh, I'm not allowed to do what I want to do life because my parents didn't they were frustrated so i have to be frustrated and this can be handed down from generation to generation so i would you know argue the other way around if you want to be a a very successful parent then be who you are and then that will also give your children the courage to be who they are and and so then they'll be much more fulfilled as well how is the paradigm in business changing how is this sorry the paradigm in business changing from we went from we're we're in a in a certain structure now, but is it? I see it being more intuitive, more fluid in in the future. I mean, you were the the world's greatest uh, a philosopher marketer. So, um, well, that's according to the New York Times. I wouldn't believe everything. I wouldn't believe everything the New York I, Times says. In this case, I hope they're right. I mean, that's obviously very. They did call me the world's greatest marketer. Of, Philosophical counseling. It's not that. It's not that that, that 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 that's such an accomplishment. I mean, we're not traded publicly on Wall Street, or maybe these days that's a good thing. Nope. Uh, you know, I, be, I may be, but ideas are certainly not traded publicly on Wall Street yet. So I don't know how successful a marketing job I've done. But in truth, uh, to be serious, played on a Prozac is in I think it's 26 languages now. It's mm-hmm. dozens and dozens and dozens of countries where I. I mean, I know from the response from people who've read the book in many languages and send email, or from clients, or from other philosophers. Who, who want to practice to come out of the woodwork and say, hey, this is great, let's do this. And, you know, we, we train them. Our association provides training and gets them up and running. So I know that this is going all over the world and it is making an impact. So I've been able, because of that, mm-hmm. um, to, to meet a lot of business leaders and social entrepreneurs and other people, you know, religious leaders and even some political leaders who are interested in the impact of ideas on their own constituencies. And so I agree with you. My experience of the world in the last decade it leads me to to believe exactly what you just said, and I would use ex- I would use the same words that the dynamic is changing, and that the business mentality certainly in this country is going to have to change if we're going to keep up with the rest of the world now, mm-hmm. because globalization is um, 
encouraging and so much innovation, so much competition in new spheres, in new domains. Things have to move much quicker. And uh, basically what I see is that structures are definitely getting more fluid, more amorphous. You know, the old model of the factory, Mm -hmm. this may be true for China now, which is factory to the world, but certainly in the USA, we are less and less dependent upon producing goods and more dependent upon producing services. And so the kinds of service provider, when you get into a service provision environment, then the structures are definitely loosened up, right? Mm -hmm. More people are telecommuting, we have the power of the web and cyberspace, and there are all kinds of ways now of, of doing things economically, which involve structures that are very, very fluid and, and which more or less are changing as new technologies come in. So, you know, your own environment has to change almost on a daily basis. Just think of your computer, you know, and how often it updates itself. And we similarly have to update our learning systems on a regular basis, too, in order to stay competitive. So I think this has imposed a very different set of challenges on people now. And instead of being cogs and machines, that was the downside, right? The whole right. process right. Uh, of, the, of the Industrial Revolution and what, Dar- you know, what Marx was railing against, although I don't buy his solution, which is worse than the problem. But he, with Dickens and his novels and so many people, uh, the, the romantic poets like Wordsworth and Browning, they were all very, very right to see the dehumanization that took place when, you know, when people had to be cogs and machines. I mean, we need to have production lines, but people should not lose their humanity in the process. So this whole change now in, you know, economic structures is opening spaces whereby people can recover their humanity. And I think that philosophy has a vital role to play there.